Episode 34 with poet and scholar Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with poet, independent scholar, and self-ascribed cousin to all sentient beings, Sister Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums. Alexis's work offers a loving portal to our collective ancestors and speaks to the many voices that converge as one divine spirit within each of us. As described by writer Sharon Bridgeforth, Alexis serves as a guide and translator of vibrational realities of dreaming into how to survive, thrive, and shapeshift this world. Born the year Alice Walker's The Color Purple was released and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, Alexis grew up in a home where the poetry and prose of Black women were highly valued. Alexis credits her parents with allowing her to use and trust her voice as a child, and in the spirit of her West Indian revolutionary roots, Alexis, without apology, continues to use her voice to create her own professional, personal, and spiritual path. Graduating from Barnard College and Duke University, her poetry and creative fiction have been honored by many, and she has served as a resident, scholar, teacher, and activist across the Black liberatory movement space. Alexis has published five books to date and is currently working on an autobiography of Audre Lorde while, you know, teaching herself 10 new languages. Her most recent publication, Undrowned, Black Feminist Lessons for Marine Mammals, was released as a part of Adrienne Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy series and is a book-length meditation that creates space for us to wander with marine mammals as a metaphor for our deepest social justice issues. Today's conversation is offered as a gift from us to you. It's the gift of slowing down, taking deep breaths, and simply listening. I encourage our community to engage with this conversation when you're free from distraction. Alexis leaves us with a benediction and a closing ceremony for this year. We invite you to listen in between the pauses, to listen for the lessons in grief, and to listen to your own voice. This conversation is so rich that we've decided to break it up into two parts, just to give space to process the density of what we discuss. Let us know what resonated with you over on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and let us know your thoughts over on Apple Podcasts. And now, part one of this incredible conversation with Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums. Doctor, sister, or is it sister, doctor, sister, doctor? Sisters first, always sister first. Okay, sister, doctor, Alexis Pauline Gums. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. Um, I am so thrilled um, to have this conversation. I'm so excited to no pun intended, dive in um, to this work. Um, and so just welcome, welcome, welcome. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. As as I mentioned, I love listening to this podcast. And so mm. it's a little bit surreal to be now on it with you. Oh, thank you. Um, so 
So to start, um, and this is this is a new question, um, but who would you like to dedicate this conversation to? Mm-hmm. Thank you for asking that. I would like to dedicate this conversation to my youngest nibbling, my niece, the artist, Penny, who who is also in London. And I got to just experience over FaceTime some of her artistic process this morning. And I I just love it. She has a clear vision. She uses found materials. Really, bo- both of my nieces are practicing artists, and that that's a, a large testament also to my to my sister. But yeah, I'm dedicating to Penny because she is a brave artist, and she is a very important teacher in my life. Mm, mm. Thank you, Penny. How old is Penny? Penny is three years old. <gasps> <laughs> Amazing, amazing. Well, what I love about this is that when Penny gets older, this conversation will be there for her to listen back to. Um, I, I view this as a, as an oral history project, so um, I'm excited to have that recorded. Um, so, so let's just like think back um, in your origins. Like, who was the first person? who allowed you to trust your voice? Mm, What a beautiful question. I feel like my parents always allowed, maybe more than allowed, encouraged me to trust my voice. So my mother tells these stories about when I was a baby that, you know, I would wake up in the morning and I would just talk and, you know, baby talk, but ostensibly talking to myself or talking to the energies around me, but I wouldn't cry and have an adult come. I would just be awake and just be in my own, you know, just, just fully, I guess, playing with my own voice or using my own voice to, be present in in that way. And so my mom just went with that, you know, at some point she would wake up and I would be in there talking and, you know, she would start to engage or we would, we would do whatever, whatever our routine was that she created for the day. And I don't think that it occurred to me then you know, that I shouldn't have access to this thing, this voice that I, mm. that I was born with, a literal voice. But I also think it's important that my parents really followed that and they listened to me and they, I mean, even when it came to like, you know, I'm a picky eater and I, I just refuse to eat certain things. And, you know, my mom was beside herself, like, is this child going to starve? Like, you know, like she has to eat something besides like macaroni and cheese, which is the only thing I wanted to eat. But she ultimately, you know, she she got medical advice and they were like, let her eat what she's gonna eat because she's growing and she's, you know, she's she's healthy. And they, for the most part, I mean, there were some frustrating moments, you know, you work hard on a meal and your child is like, 
not going to cook, but also not wanting to eat what you make. That, that's not an easy thing. In particular, in a Black and West Indian household, that's not like a thing that parents are trained to listen for. And yet, to a certain extent, they guided that. And they, they were guided by what I knew for myself within my body. Beautiful thing happened, which is that like different people in my family, my uncles and aunts, they all have their own amazing macaroni and cheese recipes, <laughs> you know, diversity of macaroni and cheese in my life caused by my stubbornness. But Later in life, when I started to learn more about like Ayurveda and, you know, everyone has their own constitution and certain foods support certain people and certain foods don't, it's remarkable because those things that I was like, I don't want to eat this. I only want to eat this. I don't want to eat this. I want to eat this lined up exactly with, you know, when I took it, when I took this test of like, for, for my particular constitution, what are the things that are supportive? It was exactly those things. I had a knowing there was a way that my desires were expressing something that was actually supportive to me physically. And I didn't have the experience that I think most of us in our culture have of shutting that down. And that that's important. You know, I, I think that, that there's like a material health outcome that comes from the fact that I don't have to now retrain myself to eat things. I actually, can just continue to remember that I know what supports me and to move towards that. And that, I mean, that is true for food, but as an artist, as a writer, as a thinker, that's everything. You know, people, when people come to me and they are at a crossroads around their creativity or their intellectual work, that huge thing is like, what, what do I want? Or of all the things, you know, all these brilliant people, all the things that I could do, all the things that I'm great at, what, what should I move towards? And I'm very grateful that I have always known and trusted if I'm moving towards something, I may not even know how to articulate why in the moment, but I trust that. And that's my, that's my biggest resource. That's the most valuable thing in my life. That is the source of everything that I'm proud of, that I've been able to engage in community is that I, I know, I know what's right for me. I know what I should be doing. I know what I should be moving towards. And I trust that the voice that I hear guiding me, the primary voice is the same voice that's been with me the whole time. <laughs> you know, that, um, is so beautiful and it resonates so dip deeply even with myself. Um, and underneath it, you know, there's a sadness because like you said earlier, um, so many of us have been taught or trained or conditioned to muffle that voice, to dampen it. Um, and so when you, when you encounter that, right, with other creatives, how do you help them find or get back to that voice that's kind of always been there? Yeah, I mean, the good news is that it has always been there, right? And, and I think that most people, especially people who are 
you know, they, they already are identifying as creative. They, they already um, understand that they're going to create life and possibility. But even people who don't, I mean, there is, there is something. There is a resonance. There is a vibration that people have for their lifetime. And even if, you know, there's been some static, there's been some distortion, there's been um, horrible traumatic things that have happened, there's been the impact of a huge, um, you know, capitalist story that tries to push all the other stories out, you can still perceive it in people's lives. You know, like mm. the decisions that people make, it's like, I, I used to say this when I was working with people who were in, in academia and they'd be like, what, what is my project? What is my project? And I'm like, you know what? Every time somebody asks you what your project is, just make something up. And then if you keep track of that, just see what do all those things have in common. And you will be surprised that you actually, even if you, in your randomness or in your spontaneity, there's a consistency that we can find if we take the space to study ourselves, right? I mean, this is one of the things Alexis DeVoe, one of my mentors, talks about why it's so important to, to keep our own archive you know, this oral history archive is so beautiful because if we have the space to step back, not always be in reaction to what's coming at us, but actually reflect on the patterns that emerge in our own being that might not be perceptible to us while we're just in the, in the process of being it. But if we take a moment and even just look back at one year, be like, oh, you know, I may have had a key word in this year. <laughs> like I didn't know at the time, but I said peace so many times. There's a message there. Clearly that's something that is in every situation, something that I'm coming back to or that I'm calling in or that's important to me. So yeah, I, I think that the space to reflect on that is, is important and we can, we can access it. It's not, it's not lost. You know, I don't think that anybody's voice is lost. I don't think now, of course, how would I know? But our beliefs about people shape how we relate to people, right? So I'm relating to people from a belief that there is a vibration within every person that is alive now and that was alive before and that will be alive that is crucial and it's a contribution to collective vibration. And there's no way to actually lose it. We might feel disconnected from it, you know, in certain moments and because of certain circumstances, but it does not cease to exist. It's like all other forms of energy. It cannot be destroyed. So yeah, I think that, that that's, really, that's really good news. And I, I, I hear what you're saying. There is also, and I think it's, it makes sense to take space to even mourn what, what has gotten between us and that, you know? And, and I, I feel so grateful and celebratory that my voice has been affirmed and supported. But sometimes when I look at, when I look at my other niece, Mackenzie, who, who maybe listen to this too in the future, who's five. And, you know, I'm a cancer rising astrologically and she's a cancer um, sun sign astrologically. 
And the way she expresses her emotions has taught me something. Cause I'll look at her and I'll be like, oh, I can see the extent to which I suppress my emotions. When I look at this, you know, since she was a baby and now as a, as a young kid, this full expression, you know, like the range of emotions, it's truly a roller coaster. There's a lot there. And I don't think there's less there for me, even at this age as a grown person. But I know that I don't give it the amount of space that she does. And so I can I can recognize that and say, okay, wow, well, what would be possible if I gave more space to to my grief, for example, or to my, to my longing. I had this moment, um, my niece Mackenzie was born and um, my father was already in his process of, of transcending to become an ancestor. He, he was dying of cancer. And I'm so glad they got to overlap and like that connection is, is, is priceless and sacred. But I had a moment a few months after he had passed away where, you know, my niece was a little baby and my brother-in-law, her father was just like leaving the room, you know, but she was reaching for him and she was like crying out cause she didn't want him to go. And she just wanted him to be closer. And I was like, oh, wow. I'm experiencing a scale of that where my father is in a different room, you know, metaphysically. And I want him to be closer in a particular way but I'm not giving myself the space to actually cry out. And, and knowing in that moment that when it comes to anyone that we've loved our whole lives, when we miss them, every age of us misses them. And to invite myself to give space to what is the six month old what is her longing for my father? How do I make space for that? How do I love that age of myself in this process of transforming relationship? Just last week, I was realizing, you know, the first time I heard my father's voice, I wasn't even born. You know, like I was in the womb the first time that I heard his voice. And actually many of the people I love, including my mother, including my grandparents and my aunts and uncles, I heard them all before I ever saw them, before I could ever touch them. And that's incredible to me, but to also say that that moment is still here with, with me. And um, yeah, there, there's always so much more growth to have. I think that the space that I am, and I, you know, I think about ancestors all the time but it was just last week in this particular moment of meditating um, that I, I was meditating and I was focusing on sound and I realized, oh, I'm listening to ancestors through a thick membrane, through a world that's full of fluid and things that are, that are holding me. I'm listening to them through that now. The one passed on, I'm still listening to them. I'm still listening for them, but I'm in a totally different world than they're in. And I'm not 
gonna be in the world that they're in until I'm completely out of this world, which is an, a rebirth experience, you know, that we all have after, after this part of our lifetimes is over. So anyway, all, all of that is to say that, you know, you spoke about the elasticity of time and relation and time functions in relation. Time is a relationship, but also in my presence with myself and with my loved ones, it actually encompasses something that can't be described through the relation at time. It's, it's, it's ongoing and it's so old and it is, belongs to the future <laughs> all at the same time. So I don't even remember what that question was, but, but I, I think that there's space for all of it. There's, there's space for knowing that in this very moment, talking with you, I can offer love for any age of myself. If there was a time when I was three years old, you know, that I didn't allow myself to, to fully be compassionate with my own feelings, I can do it now. That to me is miraculous and incredible and exciting. And it shapes how I relate to this moment. This moment is a moment where all the love is possible. Even love I couldn't receive from other people, I can receive it now. That's, that's amazing to me. That's the particular definition of aliveness for me. You said so much <laughs> that I, that I, first of all, I was transfixed. Um, but there's so many things that you, you touched on that I just find incredible and, and will double tap on a couple of them. You know, one being this relationship to, you know, to ancestors um, and ancestry. Um, and you spoke about this this process of of reaching for your father um, in another dimension as your niece was reaching for hers, you know, in this dimension. Um, but like what other lessons has grief taught you? Yeah, grief is the most amazing teacher. It's like, you know, I don't, you don't really feel like you're signing up for the class and yet. Um, yeah, I think that grief is teaching me the first thing that grief taught me is that there is no way around feeling. There's only through, there's just no way around it. And whereas I may have tried to avoid other emotions in life, grief is the emotion that I most just wanted to completely avoid. I don't want to feel, I don't want to feel that, you know, that, that was my story. And as a workaholic in recovery, and, you know, as we see Sister Solange talks about, we try to escape our grief by filling space, you know, with, with something else. So it's like, well, if I just work more, if I do this, if I just fill all my time, grief will have no space. I won't have any time to feel this grief. Grief does not care. It does not work. It does not work. <laughs> I 
trust me. You know, I, um, I tried very hard to fill all my time to not make any space for the grief that I was feeling. And I still felt it and it just knocked the other things over. And it was not, there was nothing, there was nothing that, um, could make it not present. It Mm. insisted upon itself. And, you know, that's the case with everything, but that the extremity of how much I was resisting my grief taught me that like, okay, (laughs) all resistance is futile when it comes to what my emotions are teaching me. Like it's just not, if I can't with all that I did to try to avoid this grief, I can't avoid it. Then none of, none of this other stuff is going to work. None of these little distractions, none of that is, is going to work. And that is, um, that's an important lesson. It's a, it's been a very important lesson for me that there's something, every feeling, there's something that it's teaching me. And it is not, it's a good teacher. It is not going to give up on me until I get this lesson, full stop, period. So I can just stay in this class, but I'm gonna be held back. This is, this is not the type of school system where they pass you on to the next grade because they tired of your face. This is the type of school system where you will be in this classroom with this lesson in many, many, many forms for however long it takes. And that is not to say that, um, that is not to say that we ever get out of any of these classrooms. It's it's just to say that for sure, um, for sure, it's, it's going to teach you. So first, that's the first thing. It just taught me that we're going to learn these lessons and we can resist, but it's just, it's, it's really pointless at the, at the end of the day, it's understandable and it's pointless. So (laughs) that's what I had to learn. And then I bet, I think that what grief also is teaching me is how, how much I love aliveness, how important it is to say it, you know, like to say, even though I can't ever say really how grateful I am, really how much I love the people in my lives, like nothing I say is going to actually be like, okay, done. I said it now, (laughs) you know, now, now I'm done saying it. It's just like any opportunity to express that love, to actually do it in sound, to be in vibration with other people has become so much more worthwhile to me. And there was a time when my own anxiety or my shyness or like, I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable would have me be like, okay, I really love this person. I'm really grateful. I've told them six times. I'm not going to tell them seven times because what Alexis, like, you know, awkwardness and is this the type of sociality that is, that makes sense to people? Like just leave the people alone. No, I'm saying at the seventh time, I'm saying at the seventh time and the eighth time. And um, my partner makes fun of me sometimes because it's like I could barely get off the phone with people because I'm just like, I love you. You know, like that, that's um, that is part of what grief has taught me is that I might be nervous. It might it might feel awkward to me or them. And it's so important. It's so important because I know 
in the case of those people who are in a different realm, it's, you know, one of my favorite writers, Sharon Bridgeforth writes this, if I had one more moment with you, and if I had one more moment, that's what I would be doing, expressing love and gratitude. And so when I do have the moment, even if it's just one more moment on the phone, <laughs> you know, that's, that's what it's for. That's definitely one of the lessons of grief is that why, why wait? Why repress and, and pull that back? I'm not going to ever regret expressing my gratitude and love to someone. So, you know, I can get out of my own head around that more because I feel that visceral longing for all of those people who, yes, I did tell them, but oh, I would love to tell them now. I would love to tell them again, you know, and so it just made me really value the opportunities that I have to give gratitude more. And maybe it's not that I value them more. It's just that I act on it more because I'm like, there's, there's no excuse. Um, I don't know. Grief is teaching me so much. I think that the lessons of grief are very much what led to the work of Undrowned. Just that what we feel and certainly what I'm feeling is big, it's, it's really massive and it's connected to everything. In that sense, it's oceanic and, and it's salty and it has everything to do with body fluids <laughs> and it like is a challenge for breathing. You know, it's, it's all of those things. And I think the reason that I turned to marine mammals as teachers in my grief was because of that. It's like, I, if I'm crying every day and I, I mean, I'm living in salt water. I am a marine mammal at this point because there is, there's an ocean of tears that I myself am generating to then also live through. And how do they do it? How do they, how do they breathe? How do they go deep and come back up and come back up again, no matter how deep they go into this huge, unpredictable context of the ocean, which is not separate from just this whole context of breathing that we're all in. I feel so much wonder and I guess that's another thing that grief teaches me. It's that, wow, you know, I always knew that I loved my father, but it wasn't a question in our, in our particular relationship. It wasn't a question, do I, do I love this guy or what? You know, like we, we had our challenges and, you know, all of those things, but like, that's something that I knew. That's something that I said. I felt that our relationship was important and and what grief teaches me is that it's so infinite. The love is so infinite because the grief is not, is not gonna go anywhere. There's not gonna be a point where I'm like, well, you know, I've missed him for five years. So I guess that's good. And now I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna wish he was here again. That's, that's just not, that's not the case which is a testament to how 
expansive and infinite the love is in the first place. I just, I feel wonder around that. Like that we are all here, we're connected with each other. We are connected to each other in such a profound way that we can't find the end of it. Even when the people actually die, we still can't find the end of it. That is wonderful in the most literal sense of, I am full of wonder around that. Our capacity to love is so huge. It's bigger than anything else that's going on that we perceive. <laughs> and even, you know, in my case that I'm running my life and my schedule around, it's so much bigger. So, so I'm in awe and I, I feel wonder around that. I feel also honored to be a part of a love even in just that one relationship, that's that's so big. So yeah, grief grief is an incredible, incredible teacher, um, persistent teacher. You know, I gotta think of her as a black woman teacher because she does not give up on me. <laughs> and I'm grateful. I'm grateful that with all my resistance. And really disrespect, because I think it's disrespectful to not make any space for grief in your life when you're grieving. That she's not gonna abandon me and she's not gonna give up on me. And she is, what she's giving me is another relationship and another relationship and another relationship to, to everyone I love, to everything I feel that I've lost, to everything I would pretend is disconnected from me. She's giving me this wholeness and infinite interconnectivity and really forcing me to face it newly again and again and again. Um, I'm, <laughs> there were probably 18 times where I was like, Dario, please just don't cry. Don't cry. <laughs> it's okay if you cry. We're marine mammals. We're <laughs> Well, it's just, because it's just it just hits and it just resonates in such a such a powerful way. Um, and I know that the beginning we just have to stop talking <laughs> for 10 minutes. Um, but it also makes me think, you know, kind of circling back to you speaking about, um, you know, Sister Solange and all of the things that we do to to run away. <clears throat> And, you know, you said being a recovering workaholic and, you know, takes one to no one, um, you know, but, you know, I, you know, I think of a city, you know, like London that I'm in right now or a city that I'm based in in New York and not only just outside of like the capitalistic, you know, post-industrial um, world that we're living in, but, you know, we 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 as a culture revere the the workaholic the multitasker and you know as you were speaking you know i thought but what if these people are just grieving what if we are like collectively grieving in a way and we're just not 
dealing with it. We're just not dealing with it. And, you know, and I think it's interesting. It also reframes this pandemic and what the stopping has allowed for us to do, right? Just collectively, you know, individually, um, when we just had to stop moving, you know, we had to face a lot of things, you know, I think, you know, internally, you know, and externally. Um, But I kind of want to circle back, like, like all the way back. We've kind of spoken, (laughs) we've spoken a little bit about um, your beginnings. Um, but how did, uh, sister Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums come to be? I know you mentioned a bit about growing up in a Caribbean household. Um, you spoke a bit about your father, but like, you know, before writing Undrowned, there was a young woman, you know, talking, babbling, um, <laughs> babbling and coming into the world. So like, like where, where are you from? Like, what was this path? Because your, your perceptivity and understanding of the world is one that I am infinitely intrigued by, but I know that that came, that was a process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where did I come from? You know, some of my, one of my mentors, um, M. Jackie Alexander says, well, I don't even, yeah. She, she's like, you're from a different planet. Like, where did you come from? You know, like that, that's a, that's a, that's a real question. And I think, you know, we are, we're of this planet, but this planet is of, you know, combusting star. This planet is still combusting itself. Um, I think that, The process is a multi-generational process for sure. And I don't feel like I'm the culmination of all my generations. I just know that, I just know that I so deeply belong to the questions and longings of my people so so I would say, I mean, if we think about Undrowned as, as a place, it's this relationship with the ocean is something that is very old within my ancestry. People, people of the Caribbean, we're in relationship with the ocean. Anyone who's on an island is in relationship with the, with the ocean by necessity and And in particular, as a person of African ancestry from the Caribbean, is in relationship with the Middle Passage, is in relationship with breathing across the ocean in incredibly constrained circumstances. And also, you know, part of my generations are of the Shinnecock people, Shinnecock literally meaning the shoreline people um, who are in and have been for thousands of years in sacred relationship with with the whale that we now call the North Atlantic right whale, um, who's profoundly endangered at at this point. And so so I think it's it's just important to contextualize because I often think I'm having like some really new clever idea in my life. You know, I'm like, I'm an artist, what about whales? And then it's like, 
oh, <laughs> you're not, you're not, uh, this is not a new idea. This is like you finally hearing what your ancestors have been asking of you and of themselves for long before you, Alexis, were even an idea. And so, so I just like, how, how is their sister, Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums? It's like, yeah, how, you know, it's, it's, it's not, I have a role in what that is and defining what that is and is older than me. And I belong, I belong to it. It doesn't belong to me in a, in a way, at least in a, a form of control way. I don't control it, but I answer to it. And um, I answer to the possibilities that the energy work of my ancestors results in, I answer to it. And so, so yeah, I, I was one of those kids. I don't know if this is every West Indian kid's experience, but this is my parents told me this was a West Indian thing. It could have just been <laughs> for them. Is that they throw you in the water, right? Like you, you, you were in water before you were born or at least a liquid, <laughs> a fluid that was um, nourishing before you were born. People know how to swim. So you just throw the baby in the water. They'll remember how to swim. And that's deep. You know, that happened at like the Y in New Jersey. They were like, throw in the water, she'll know how to swim. And, you know, every summer we would go back to Anguilla and I would be in relationship with the ocean. And that's a, it's a huge part of who I am. But uh, foreshadowing, like the baby Weddell seal, I was not peaceful in my relationship with water. I was terrified to be submerged in water. I did not want water in my face. I just didn't. I, I, I was in the guppies in my swim class at the Y for a very long time. Talk about being held back in a, in a class. I was in the guppies, which is the, which is the most remedial swimming class for a very long time because I did not want to put my face in the water. And I didn't want to swim, you know, the, the normative way that you swim, which is you put your face in the water and you, you know, you move from side to side, you take a breath, you know, you do, you do all those things. I resisted that for so long. I was like, no, I can swim like a turtle with my head completely out of the water. And this is, this is um, maybe this is part of also how my stubbornness <laughs> um, manifested. Cause it was like, for some reason, it didn't matter to me that these people were the swimming teachers. It didn't matter to me that they were not gonna put me <laughs> in the next class unless I swam the way they said swimming was. I was like, I have a better way to swim. And I, that's what I'm gonna do. Now, now, I, now I have, you know, I could go underwater and I, and I have all of this, but you talk to my immediate family members and all my aunts and uncles, they're like, we remember that I would fight I would fight you if you tried to put my face in the water. And so that's part of why I so identify with, you know, the, the Weddell seal. When they first have to learn to swim, they resist it so hardcore. And they fully have the capacity to do it. But until they know, they don't know. And I'm so grateful to have that example and to also have the storytellers of my family to remind me of who I, who I was at an early age because wow, does that show up in so many areas of my life? 
I don't know that I have the capacity to move beyond this particular institution until I do. I don't know that I have the capacity to relate to work and time and capital in a completely different way until I actually try it and realize, you know, I was resisting it and I was afraid for so long, but actually I do. I do have the capacity to do this, to do this differently. Um, that's, that's the evolutionary experience I'm in. I, I used to keep a picture of myself learning to walk where I could see it because um, there's this picture. My, you can see my dad in the background. I'm learning to walk. So I'm like, you know, tottering, um, literally not even yet a toddle, but just a totter, like, <laughs> like trying to stay up. And it's my mom who took the picture, but I'm like smiling. And what I know from the story is that I like fell on my face right after that. Um, but it was just a joy in, in learning to do something that I didn't at that point know how to do. And I think about that image because now, you know, I'm at a place in my mobility where walking is something I can almost take for granted. And what about this? What about this challenge that I have? Like, what about this challenge that I have now where I'm moving past the point where my individual earning can support how large our organization is and all the things that we that we have to do. Like where I have to really understand that it's gonna be other people's money <laughs> that makes it what it is. That to me feels like, oh, but I've, I've I've depended on, you know, and I've done well of earning and this and supporting and I trust that. And now I got to trust other people and I got to trust the resources to come and I, and I don't have control, but one day it's going to be like, oh, I don't even think about that, let alone to be afraid of it. It's not even something that I have to be conscious of to be engaged with that that can be possible for whatever life lesson I'm in now or it's unimaginable that that wouldn't be a thought I'm obsessively thinking about it and processing it now but there will come a day where that's just me in the picture totally learning something new and falling on my face a few times and then achieving a different level of grace that I didn't know was possible Thank you all so much for joining us today. Again, this is just part one of our conversation with Sister Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums. This conversation just drips with so much love and care. Let us know what resonated with you over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And I don't know, I think sending this to one or two friends would be the gift of a lifetime. There is no way around grief. You just have to go through it there's great lessons on the other side. Stay curious and keep dreaming.